questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. It is now 103 years since drugs were first banned in the United States. On the eve of this centenary, journalist Johan Harry set off on an epic three-year, 30,000-mile journey into the war on drugs. What he found is that more and more people all over the world have begun to recognize three startling truths. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. And the drug war has very different motives to the ones we have seen on our TV screens for so long. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And tonight's special guest is Johan Hari, a columnist for The Independent in London for nine years, twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International. He has written for The New York Times, The LA Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Slate, The New Republic, and The Nation. He has also been awarded the Comet Award for Cultural Commentator of the Year by Editorial Intelligence and has been named Journalist of the Year by Stonewall. He is the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. His website is chasingthescream.com, and Johan Harry joins us directly from London, England. Hello, Johan, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, Mel. Really good to be with you. Thanks very much. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. Doing very well, and I have to tell you, your book is a page turner. I spent the last three days and I could not stop. It's an excellent book for anyone, anyone. Folks, if you really want to learn about the war on drugs or the war for drugs, read the book. But Johan, when and why did you start, quote unquote, chasing the scream? And explain what you mean by chasing the scream. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate what you said about the book. Um, if for me, there was quite a personal reason why I wrote this book. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I, I didn't understand why then because I was so small. But as I got older, I realized we had a drug addiction in my family and several members of my family. And, you know, when I started to write the book, it was God nearly six years ago now. To be honest, this is going to sound really arrogant. I thought, oh, this is going to be an easy book to write. <laughs> I thought I've lived through this with my family. I'd written as a journalist quite a lot about the drug war. I thought, ah, oh, this is going to be a, it's going to be a cinch. And I sat down and I wrote out a list of questions to myself that I wanted to answer, which were, I knew we were coming up to a hundred years since drugs were first banned. So one of them is, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts a hundred years ago? Why do we continue when it doesn't seem to be working very well? What are the alternatives like in practice? How do they actually work? And and what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And as I started to write, I realized I didn't know the answer to a single one of those questions. So I realized I had to go on a journey, and I don't think I realized how big a journey it would be at the start. But what I wanted to do was both to look at the best evidence, but also to sit with people all over the world whose lives have been changed by the drug war and by the alternatives to the drug war. So I ended up going over 30,000 miles. I think I've been to 17 different countries now. And I end up getting to know a crazy mixture of people from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel um, to, you know, a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. It turns out they do. Uh, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. And I think the main thing I learned is almost everything that I thought I knew about this subject was wrong. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The war on drugs is not what we think it is. And the alternatives to the war on drugs are not what we think they are. So it was quite bewildering in a way to realize that so much of what we've taken for granted for so long is wrong. And to meet so many people whose people who's, whose lives have been reshaped by our errors and by, if we start getting it right, how many people's lives can be reshaped. So the, the, the title, Chasing the Screen, which you asked about, comes from this guy who I knew very little about when I started doing, doing the research. He's a man called Harry Anslinger, and he's probably the most influential person who no one's ever heard of. He's the man who invented the modern war on drugs long before Nixon, long before Reagan in the 1920s and 1930s. He's the man who first uses the phrase war on drugs. He's the 
government bureaucrat who helps to create the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and then remains in charge of it right up until the Kennedy administration from the 20s to the Kennedy administration. And he is a kind of crazy story because he takes over the Department of Prohibition, alcohol prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So he inherits this big government bureaucracy that's just been humiliated. They've lost the war on alcohol. They, they're, they're completely corrupt. It's just a broken, finished government agency. And he wants to keep it going. And he builds the modern war on drugs. He wants to turn his department into the repository of the war on drugs. And he effectively invents the war on drugs as its mission. And, you know, he was a sincere believer and he built this this department, this mission around two really intense hatreds that he had. One was an intense hatred of African-Americans and Latinos. This is a guy who was regarded as incredibly racist in the 1920s, which is a sign of how extraordinarily racist he was. He used the N-word so often in official police memos that his own senator said he should have to stand down. And the other group he really hated was people with addiction problems. When he was a kid, he, he grew up in um, a place called Altoona in, in rural Pennsylvania. And he grew up on a farm, a remote farm in, in these wheat fields. And he never forgot this experience he had as a boy. On the next farm down, or a couple of farms down, there was a, a farmer's wife who had a, an addiction to opiates. And one day, I think he was 10 or 11, he went to the farmer's house and upstairs the farmer's wife was screaming and harry anslinger didn't understand why and the farmer said you know go to the local pharmacy get this prescription so harry anslinger takes the horse and cart and he goes there as quickly as he can and he gets the prescription and he comes back and the woman is given what would have been very powerful opiates and she stops screaming and Anslinger took from this experience, traumatized by this experience, and he took from this experience that, you know, that, that drugs cause this screaming. And he believes that by launching this war, he's going to stop these screams. And uh, to me, the tragedy of Harry Anslinger is that in reality, he creates many, many more screams in turn. And obviously, there are more Harry Anslinger. He, of course, he's deceased by now. But more people took over his, his position, and we'll talk about that later. And also, you mentioned there's a country that has decriminalized drugs from from cannabis to, to crack cocaine. But we'll leave that for the end, because this is where things get better. <laughs> you say if there was a Mount Rushmore for the war on drugs, there would be three people displayed there. Who might they be? So Harry Anslinger, who we've been talking about, Billy Holiday, and a man called Arnold Rothstein. So... I open Chasing the Screen with a story that might seem, to, I think some people it sounds a bit, seems like a bit of a strange place to begin a book about the drug war. So in 1939, Billie Holiday walked on stage in Midtown Manhattan in a hotel where she wasn't even allowed to walk through the, the front door because she was an African-American. They made her go through the service elevator. She stood in front of a white audience and she sang a song that I'm sure lots of your listeners will know. It's a song called Strange Fruit. It's a sure. anti-watching song. It imagines, it describes the, the bodies of African-American men hanging from trees in the South and it after being lynched, and it describes this as the, the strange fruit of the South. Billy Holiday's goddaughter, Lorraine Feather, said to me, look, you've got to understand how radical this was for an African-American woman to stand in front of a white audience and sing that song at that point in history. And that night, Billy Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, from Harry Anslinger's men. And the, it basically said, stop singing this song. And that might seem like a, a weird place to begin this story, because you think, well, what's that got to do with the drug war, right? I think it reveals so much about the drug war. Billy Holiday was everything Harry Anslinger hated, rolled into one person. I really saw this when I went to his his archives. She's obviously an African-American woman resisting white supremacy. She's also had a very bad drug addiction. She, when she was 10, she was raped. And the rapist was sent to prison for two years, and she was sent to a reformatory for longer. And she ran away, and she ended up um, in a, in a I don't like using the word working. It's not the right word in this context. She ended up being in a, in a brothel where she was raped for money. 
by many men from when she was 14. And really, Billie Holiday was trying to stun her pain and her grief. And she started with alcohol and she, she used, ended up using a lot of heroin. And so Anslinger's men really hated her. And Anslinger really hated her. And when she was told to stop singing this song, she effectively said, screw you, I'm an American citizen, I'll sing whatever damn song I want. And that's when Anslinger really resolved to destroy her. So first of all, he he, he hated employing non-white people, but you couldn't really send a a white guy in, into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday. It'd be right. kind of obvious. So he employs this this guy called Jimmy Fletcher, who's what they called a bag man. His job was to follow Billie Holiday around. And he spends a year and a half following her in all these different places. And Billie Holiday was so amazing that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life, he, he felt really guilty about what he did. He, he busts her. She's put on trial. The The trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday. And she said, yeah, that's how it felt. And she's, she's sent to prison. She doesn't sing a word in prison. She's there for nearly two years. She doesn't sing a word in prison. And then when she gets out, the cruelest thing happened. You needed a, um, a license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. It was called a cabaret performance license. And Anslinger makes sure that Billie Holiday doesn't get it. Her, her friend Yolanda Bavan, who's another great jazz singer, said to me, can you imagine anything crueler than to take away singing from Billie Holiday? This is, by the way, what we do to addicts all over the United States today. We, we put obstacles between them and reconnecting. And so, she relapses. She uses a lot of heroin. And when she's in and alcohol, huge amounts of alcohol. And when she's in her early forties, one day in Midtown, in, in Midtown Manhattan, not far from where she first sang Strange Fruit, she collapses and she's taken to hospital. The first hospital wouldn't even take her in because she was an addict. The second hospital lets her in, but she says to one of her friends, Maylie Dufty, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them. They're going to kill me in there. She's convinced that Harry Anslinger's men are going to come for her. And she was right. She was diagnosed in the hospital with liver cancer. And the Anslinger's men come and they arrest her on her prison bed, on her hospital bed. And they handcuff her to the hospital bed. I interviewed the last surviving person who had been in that room. Wonderful man called Eugene Callender. And they don't let her, they throw her friends out. They don't let her friends in to see her. They don't let her have a record player or her candies. And, um, she, she obviously goes into heroin withdrawal because they're not giving her any heroin. And, and Maylie Dufty, her friend, managed to insist that she was given methadone. And she actually started to recover a bit because if you're very weak with liver cancer, you know, that kind of withdrawal is like a bad flu. It can finish you off. And, um, she did start to recover and then Anslinger's men have her cut off from the methadone and then she died the next day or a couple of days later, I think it was. One of her friends told the BBC that it looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. And there were nearly riots at the funeral. People had been protesting outside the hospital with a sign saying, let Lady Day live. And there's a lot of things I take from that. I think it tells us so much about the drug war, it tells us what it was about at the start, how it was about persecuting African-Americans and Latinos, which it remains today. African-Americans and Latinos are no more likely to use drugs than the other group. They make up the overwhelming majority of people who go to prison for it. Um, it, it. It tells us about what it does to people with addiction problems. Sometimes people say, oh, the war on drugs fails when it comes to addiction. The reality is much worse. It makes addiction worse. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to more of that later. Um, and, but, but there's also another thing about that, which really helped me, actually, because like anyone who's got people they love who have addiction problems, this is a difficult thing to talk about, but we all have a Harry Anslinger in us, right? I think one of the reasons why the debate about the war on drugs is so charged is because it runs through the hearts of all of us. We all have a Harry Anslinger in our heads. We all have a bit that says, I wish someone would just stop you. I wish someone would force you to stop doing this thing. And one of the things that really helped me was to, to think about the heroism of Billie Holiday. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped singing that song. 
she would go to places where they didn't you didn't need a license she would go to the deepest parts of the deep south she would sing strange fruit sometimes people would throw bottles at her and call her the n-word and she would throw the bottle back and she would sing her damn song and she never let them stop her and i think you know the only story of heroism we ever get to tell about people with addiction problems is when they stop being addicted when they get to overcome their addiction and that is a story of heroism and those people absolutely deserve to be celebrated but you know billy holiday never stopped using heroin and she was still a hero the the strength and the courage it took to do what she did to stand up to those people was extraordinary especially given the pain and the grief and the distress that she was in so to me it's a story about both what the drug war does and the resistance to the drug war and i had this you know I had this really interesting conversation with, I mentioned Yolanda Bavan, who was a friend of Billy Holiday's, who was a jazz singer. And, you know, I was talking to her about how every day all over the world, people still listen to Billy Holiday and they feel stronger. And every day people are still following Harry Anslinger's script and it's making people weaker. But uh, Yolanda, I asked Yolanda, you know, what would you say to Billy Holiday if you could talk to her now? And she, she had this long pause and she said she'd been telling me about how Billie Holiday at the end of her life thought she'd be completely forgotten. She thought no one would remember her. And she said, I would say to her this morning, I went into Whole Foods and they were playing your music. Nobody forgot you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it really stayed with me. That is. You know, you developed the characters, not that that you're creating, because this is absolutely not fiction. But I love Billie Holiday's music. I love all that that music, the jazz, and so on. And reading her story, not only was she fighting this war on, on drugs, she was also fighting at a time when black people were not expected to be like her. And why don't you tell us a little bit of her background? Because I think it was incredible. I didn't know all the specifics. You know, her father was. I think he was 17 and, you know, he died of pneumonia, I believe, because of the, where she lived in that area of the of the United States, I think it was Maryland. It was the, the last bastion of not having, you know, septic systems there. So he had pneumonia, but he couldn't go to the hospital to be taken care of because he was black. So he died. The mother was 19. She couldn't take care of him. Am I Am I going on the right track here? Totally. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking story of a, what what was done i think her father actually died in the in the south he was a jazz musician himself but he was traveling and he got sick i can't remember what it was but it was something very simple to treat it might have been an appendicitis but there were no hospitals that would take african-americans so he died right and, and she regarded her father as being rightly as being murdered by by white supremacy um entirely rightly i mean there were there was a whole generation of extraordinarily heroic um singers and performers paul robeson people like that but the yeah i mean one of the most bleakly funny parts of the research for this early part of the book about which is the first i guess i mean 15 20 percent about this early drug war um was the anslinger would send his anslinger was obsessed with jazz he thought jazz was like um you know i'm trying to think of the least offensive term like miscegenated you know interbreeding it was everything he thought was like a yeah exactly he thought that if people listened to if he was obsessed with the idea that white women would listen to jazz and want to have sex with african-american men and um there's a really funny bit where he would get his agents to write down um the lyrics of jazz songs in in jazz clubs and then he would announce that this is what people he, he thought they that the people who sang them thought they were literally true and this is what drugs did to you so there was one song called i think it's called that ocean man and there's a lyric that's something like when he gets the notion he thinks he can walk across the ocean and anslinger writes in the margins this is what marijuana does to you you believe you can walk <laughs> on the water you know uh and i think it's 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 an interesting story about it was fascinating i spent plenty of time in the Anslinger archives and it was a really interesting experience because you see the the tracking of the development of this the and Anslinger himself is this fascinating dark weird mad character uh you know he himself is very mentally unstable he actually has several breakdowns um 
the has to take quite a lot of time off work because he's, he's he's really going crazy and you see that in the files this is a, this guy was 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 crazy and um it's interesting how he how he pioneers this man on cannabis so when he takes over the narcotics bureau cannabis is legal in the united states it was legal until the 1930s and he had said publicly that cannabis is not a harmful drug he he, he was instrumental in relabeling it as marijuana because he thought that sounded more mexican <laughs> but the um so he he had previously said cannabis isn't harmful we shouldn't ban it and then suddenly because what he realizes i mean it's difficult to know because i do think harry anslinger genuinely believed the stuff he said but i also think he believed things that were convenient for him so there's a realization that um after he takes over that there just isn't that much cannabis sorry there isn't that much uh, cocaine or, or heroin in the united states at that time it's just not that popular you can't maintain a really big government department with just a war on on cocaine and, and, and heroin so he suddenly reverses his position and announces that cannabis is not only harmful but literally the most evil drug in the world i think that's a phrase he used he, he said that if um Frankenstein's monster had bumped into cannabis on the staircase. The monster would have dropped dead of fright. He announced that um, if you use cannabis, you would almost certainly start trying to murder people, jump out windows. Um, he, he particularly latched onto one case. It's kind of a notorious case. Um, it's a boy called Victor Lycarta in uh, near Tampa in Florida hacked his family to death with an axe. I think he was 21, 22. And um, Anslinger announced that this is what you would do if you use cannabis. This is what cannabis does to people. And he, uh, with the help of Hearst newspapers, which is kind of like the Fox News of its day, he basically popularizes this idea that the Victor, like he latches the story and he says, we have to ban cannabis because of Victor Lycarta and this is going to spread all over the United States and it's going to be a horror show and we have to ban it. And, and then cannabis is in fact. And years later, someone went back and looked at the psychiatric files for Victor Lycarta. There's not even any evidence he used cannabis. His family had actually been advised to institutionalise him a year before because he was very seriously mentally ill. But so Anslinger is a genius. I, I don't want to. It's very important to stress. I don't believe in the great man theory of history. It's not. It's not about one man. But what what Anslinger is is brilliant at conducting the fears of American society and projecting them onto these drugs. Now you had to have a culture that was receptive to that, right? And you have to have very deep forces in American society that were receptive to this. He was like a genius surfer and he needed a great wave. And there was also a great wave um, of fear and racism and hysteria and panic and so on. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think he's, he's, he's really instrumental and he, and he coins the phrase war on drugs. He, he really early, a lot of people think it's, begins with Nixon. This is, is interested me. It is right, so much. Exactly. Yeah. And another thing that really interested me actually was if you'd asked me before I did the research, you know, what, um, why were drugs banned? Why was there this birth of the drug war? I would have guessed that drugs were banned for the reason that if you, you know, uh, if you, you know, I know you live in Arizona. If you stepped out onto the street outside your home and you just randomly asked people, why are drugs banned? Most people would say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs and we don't want people to become addicted. And so I assume that was why, you know, that's what they would have said then. It was fascinating reading all the early devices. That stuff barely came up. Um, the, the, it's almost not mentioned in the, in the debates. Um, the reason why drugs were banned was because of these really deep, um, racist, Fears. I mean, that if you read the official debates from the time that cocaine was banned, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. I mean, official statements say, so this is belief that African Americans were using cocaine, forgetting their place. I'm putting that in inverted commas, obviously, and attacking white people. Uh, this official statement says the cocaine N word sure is hard to kill. I mean, really extraordinary stuff. There's also this belief that Chinese Americans had introduced opium and heroin to the United States in order to drug white women and, and, and have their way with them, which Anslinger was obsessed with. He's constantly obsessed with the idea that non-white people are trying to uh, have sex in depraved ways with, with uh, 
with white women in this is really you read his stuff and it's kind of pornographic the way he describes it you know i mean it's really you know the panties and the, i mean he really really you can feel him going off on one on wasn't anslinger fearful that black people and latinos for example just to to pick those two minorities that he feared that by being under the influence of drugs they would lose their inhibitions and they would stop the yes sir yes ma'am the the respect the 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 uh the the subversion that they they needed would stop if they were under the influence of drugs and they felt like we can't have that i think that's a really good way of putting it i think he i mean so he also had this this very apocalyptic way of thinking about the world he he had he had actually been sent during the the first world war as a diplomat to uh the netherlands and germany and he sees this catastrophic collapse of european civilization and he becomes convinced that civilization can just fall like that you know it can just fall apart so he believes that um you know civilization is incredibly fragile and any any disturbance like the arrival of a drug can really bring america to its knees and he thought that uh obviously african-americans and latinos were this this I mean, he really was such an extreme racist. It's hard to, you know, because you don't want to be anachronistic. All white Americans would, would by the standards of today, be racist. I mean, right. he wasn't insane racist by the standards of the day, right? Like that's, that's, so that's, well, I'm not talking about, you know, oh, everyone looks bad when you look back. I mean, he was violently racist at the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, I, th- I think you're totally right. And it's, you know, it's this period where, um, I mean, I think if you look at also, so he announces very early on that if he's just given the resources, drugs will disappear from the United States. And I think he did genuinely believe that. Um, and of course, <laughs> your listeners would have noticed drugs did not disappear. So he, he suddenly, um, he, and that reminds me, I should answer your bit about Arnold Rothstein as well, but the, 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 he basically then announces, ah, well, the reason drugs haven't disappeared is because of Mexico. The Mexicans are flood, the Mexicans and the Chinese. He said the Mexicans were flooding the United States with drugs. He used, it means uncannily similar to the language Donald Trump used in the, in the lead up to the 2016 election about, you know, Latinos are flooding our country with drugs. We've got to have barriers against them. Um, but also the, um, uh, he also claimed that the communist Chinese were, this is obviously a little bit later were um flooding america with heroin in order to weaken america so they could invade the united states and this is said when he's a government official you know um so he then does this extraordinary thing so up to this point the drug war had been an american a united states phenomenon he then announces well we're only going to win if the whole world does it and he decides to extort other countries into doing it so there's this man who i think we should build a statue to when this war is over Mexico. So he says to Mexico, you've got to ban drugs like we have at that point. All drugs were almost all drugs were legal in Mexico. Um, and the Mexican government, entirely to their credit, said, no, this isn't this isn't going to work. We can see it hasn't worked in your country. It's not going to work here. We don't want to do it. In fact, they did the exact opposite. They appointed as their drugs, the person in charge of the drugs policy, a doctor called Leopoldo Salazar Viniegra, who basically said we shouldn't ban cannabis. It's not very harmful. Other drugs, we should provide love, compassion, support, and we mustn't ban drugs because then we'll have loads of armed groups and they'll take over Mexico and they'll destroy the country. If anyone has ever been born out by history, it should be Leopoldo Salazar-Beniegra. So, it, but Anslinger basically says, look, you've got to get rid of this man. We can't have this. And the Mexican government stand by their, stand by their man. And for several years, they insist on this better policy. And Anslinger and the US government basically just step up more and more threats. So what they do is, um, in the end, at that time, um, the all legal opiates for like painkillers were manuf- in in the Americas were manufactured in the U.S. So they just cut off the supply of legal opiates to Mexico, and people start to just die in agony in hospitals in Mexico. And at that point, Mexico gives in and they ban drugs, and then the whole course of Mexican history changes at that point. I mean, I went spent a lot of time in northern Mexico. And later Colombia, and I really saw the, the effects of this. Just this real turning point. But I should just answer the the. You asked about the 
you know, I, I describe in the book this Mount Rushmore for the war on drugs, and I describe these three figures. You, we've talked about Anthony and Billy Holiday. There's this other man. Yeah, but, but hold it, hold it, because I want to go one by one, and I, I still want to stay with Billy Holiday for a second. There was at one point when she was younger, she was sent to a convent, and uh, she would not want the nuns to control her. And at one night, I think they put her in a room, an empty room, with the exception of one thing. Can you tell us that story and what happened later when she was down and out and she didn't even know that she had the talent that the world found out later? Yeah, it's, um, I found this story really, really monstrous, actually. The, um, so she was, she basically kind of brought herself up on the streets of Baltimore. And, um, when that was a really, really poor city. Her, 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 I can't remember if it was her grandmother or her great grandmother who she'd known as a child had been a slave. And, um, yeah, it, it, so after she's raped, she's sent to this, this punishment prison. They, I mean, it's unimaginably grotesque. They basically accused her of being wayward and tempting this man, this man who was in his forties and she was 10. Uh, I mean, it's grotesque and, and of course racist as well. Um, so these nuns decide that she's unruly and they, they, they decide to, one of the ways they punish her in many ways, but one of the things they did is they locked her in with a load of dead bodies overnight to teach her a lesson, whatever psychopathic lesson they thought a 10 year old child, a disturbed 10 year old child would learn from that. I don't know. Um, and she ran away. She tried to find her mother. Her mother was working as a prostitute in New York. And that's where Billie Holiday ends up in what's now Roosevelt Island. It had a different name then. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it, anyway, it was called Federal Island, maybe. Um, anyway, an island just off, off Manhattan. Um, and she ends up, um, in a brothel, uh, being raped for money by these disgusting men. She was 14. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really heartbreaking when you think about what was done to her. And she, she, there's a wonderful story she, she tells, um, in, uh, Lady Sings the Blues, her memoir about, you know, just performing in these early jazz bars and, and people really, she had this extraordinary, uh, well, as anyone who knows who's heard her music, this extraordinary kind of voice, this extraordinary talent. It was a very unusual kind of talent of singing just behind the beat. It's actually, I thought it was interesting. Frank Sinatra said the biggest influence on his singing style was, was Billy Holiday. Um, it's a very unusual kind of, kind of singing. Uh, and, and she really has this kind of musical, musical genius. And Anslinger really wanted to destroy the entire jazz world. He wanted a big roundup of, he, he tried to order a roundup of all jazz musicians. Um, but he couldn't really do that. So he kind of settles on a few and one of them was, was Billy Holiday and the, God, the agency employed, there was this grotesque man called George White, who's kind of like a, a real, one of those figures where if it was a fiction, people wouldn't believe it. George White was a morbidly obese federal bureaucrat. Not that there's anything wrong with being morbidly obese, but he was a, that's not the bad bit. He was a morbidly obese federal bureau of narcotics agent who, I mean, he's a kind of extraordinary figure. He infiltrated a Chinese drug gang by pretending to be Chinese and learning Mandarin, which I always thought was quite impressive. But, um, he, um, he's the one who they sent to really break Billie Holiday towards the end. He almost certainly plants drugs on her at one point, but he, we've got George White's diary. It's at Yale. And I mean, he boasted about drugging women and raping them. He, uh, he says at one point, where else, but the, I, I'm just going to get the exact quote, but it's the sentiment. Where else, but at the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, could you rape and pillage with impunity? Where else, but at the Federal Bureau of Narcotics? I mean, just an absolutely, he, he strangled a man with his bare hands and claimed he was a spy and he wasn't. I mean, really just, and then kept a photograph of that man he'd strangled with his bare hands on his wall. Completely insane figure who sent to, so you have Billy Holiday, who certainly had her, her flaws, but was such an intelligent, brave survivor up against these unimaginably grotesque forces, you know, like, uh, you know, I bend over backwards to be fair to people. And I think it's, 
I think we should try to understand Anslinger's psychology. And he was actually right about some things. He was the first major government bureaucrat to say that the mafia was a real thing. At the time, it was thought of as a, a kind of um, like a conspiracy theory, like, um, like the Loch Ness Monster or, I don't know, like birtherism or trutherism or something. It was regarded as a kind of crazy kook thing. And he was, in fact, right. It did exist. And he actually did his pioneering work documenting it. So he wasn't all wrong about everything, Harry, but the the you have these grotesque forces ranged against Billie Holiday. It's, it's, um, it was, it was really heartbreaking that part. I mean, I got to, as we say, as you said, I got to some really inspiring and amazing parts, but this part I found really tough. It's incredible, her story, but speaking of jazz, I know every generation blames the one before, and the old generation complains about the new trends, new clothing styles, you know, new music genres, you know, heavy metal, rap, etc. But I never thought, Johan, that jazz would be included in a category of deplorable music. And as we were talking about Harry Anslinger, he said, quote, jazz was the opposite of everything he believed in it. It is improvised and relaxed and free form. It follows its own rhythm. Worst of all, it is a mongrel music made of made up of European, Caribbean, and African echoes, all mating on American shores. To him, this was musical anarchy what would anybody say today what would be the equivalent of jazz would it be gangster rap for example it's a good question i don't think you could have even jeff sessions at his worst couldn't wage war on an entire genre of music (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure maybe he'd like to but the um i don't know it's a good question it would probably be something if you think about the way that harry anslinger viewed jazz I don't think it would be a musical thing. If you were, it would probably be like some grotesque kind of pornography. You know, I don't know, some like, I don't know if I can even say it on your show, like some kind of really, I don't know, like if it, I, I'm too innocent to know what it'd be, but like some kind of, if you imagine some kind of niche porn, it would probably be like, if you imagine the kind of, like I don't know, some really specialist weird fetish or something, yeah. it would probably be the way you and I think about that. But even that, you and I would probably be like, well, if it's what you're into, you know, like, it's fine by me. But, you know, it, it, it would be, I'd say what it'd be like. It'd be like the way Harry Anslinger thought about jazz would be the way you and I would think about bestiality pornography, oh, wow. right? Wow. It would yes. be like revulsion beyond words. Like, how can someone do this? This is so terrible. Um, now, we're right about bestiality pornography, don't misunderstand me. But the, um, and he was wrong about jazz, but the, yeah, it was just in, uncomprehending horror and it's quite funny whenever he tests this one probably just one time or a few times that he brings this up when he testifies before a senate committee but subcommittee but um you know he often says as his old the worst thing he'll ever say about jazz is it could result in pregnancy interracial pregnancy he says um so it's a great source of sadness to me that he never lived to see president obama (laughs) right well, you see, say, take J. Edgar Hoover, you know, yeah. many others who pretended or at least they gave the impression that the existence of the mafia was a conspiracy theory. But when in fact we know now, well, I'm not sure if the, most of the population know, that they work for the mafia. So there's this crazy story. Now, I, I want to be clear, this is not true of Anslinger, and it would be false to say this about Anslinger. Um, there's this crazy story about why a particular part of the drug war was introduced in California. It's quite weird. And I didn't really believe it when I first read it, but then I got hold of the, eventually it was establishing a trial in, in, in Nevada. And uh, so I got hold of the, the court transcripts in the national archives. So basically when drugs are banned in the United States, when heroin and cocaine are banned, the senators deliberately wrote a loophole into the law where they said, look, people shouldn't be able to buy heroin or cocaine but if someone is addicted to it, it's okay for their doctor to prescribe it. So in lots of places, doctors carried on prescribing, particularly heroin. And um, the death rate in those places was much lower than the death rate in the places that had banned, banned, banned drugs outright. And this partly under, this really stepped up under Anslinger that this was shut down, right? They wanted to close this loophole. So they closed it down state by state. And one of the places that really held out was California um, for a range of 
of reasons. And one is that it was really popular. The, 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 the heroin prescription, the mayor of Los Angeles at the time stands in front of a heroin prescribing clinic and says, you know, you, I can't remember his words, but he says, basically, you're not going to shut this down. Um, and the places where it had been shut down, the death rate had really significantly increased. So this was pretty popular in California. And it was finally cut down in Cali- shut down in California. And the reason why it was established in a trial, the Anslinger's man in California, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in California, was a big redheaded guy called Chris Hansen. And it turned out he was approached by a um, Chinese drug dealer called Wu Sing. And Wu Sing was really annoyed because he also operated in Nevada. And in Nevada, they'd shut down the loophole. And so everyone who had an addiction problem had to go to Wu Sing to buy their buy their smack, right? But in California, he didn't have any customers because they could go to the heroin clinics. So he bribed Chris Hansen to shut down, to basically introduce the drug war into California, step up the drug war in California, and to shut down the legal heroin clinics, which Chris Hansen then did. And then, you know, all the customers went to Sing. So you have this really fascinating moment. I think this tells you something really profound about the drug war. The only people who support it at the start are Harry Anslinger and the people behind him and gangsters, criminals, the mafia, because it transfers the entire trade from the people who used to control it, pharmacists, doctors, to them, to their control, to armed criminal gangs. And they're the only people who benefit from it the whole way through, right? They are the, they are the unequivocal winners of the, the, the war on drugs. You know, about, uh, six weeks ago, I, uh, had a, I spent a slightly crazy day hanging out with Pablo Escobar's son in Buenos Aires. Interesting. Uh, Sebastian. He's a really, he's a wonderful person, actually. He's a really fascinating man. Um, Sebastian, he was originally called Pablo Escobar Jr., but for obvious reasons, he doesn't use that name anymore. He's What's his name now? Sebastian Marroquin. And um, he, we have the same uh, publisher in Spanish, which is one of the ways we met. And so I met him in the, children's play area of a burger king in suburban buenos aires it was, very, it was like a weird stress dream because he looks so much like his dad but anyway sebastian i can talk about him later if you want but sebastian said to me you know the only thing my father feared was legalizing drugs it was the only thing because it was the one thing that would bankrupt him, exactly right? and so the, and what's interesting to me is you see this right at the start of the drug war at the start of the drug war Armed gangsters love it so much they will pay to have it stepped up. And uh, now there were people at the time when this trial came to light, there were the, the, when the, this was then established. Chris Hansen was established to be in the pay of Wu Sing, and this was then established at a trial in in Nevada, for which I have the the court records, um, which is why I actually start to believe it because until then I thought this is, this can't be true. This must be fabrication. Um, and at the time, there were people who said, well, Harry Anslinger must be in the pay of the mafia, right? Like, because why else would someone do something so stupid? Why would someone do so, introduce such a counterproductive uh, policy? That's not, that's not true. And I want to be clear, that's not true. That Harry Anslinger wasn't in the pay of the mafia. I think it's extremely unlikely and there's no evidence for it. He really just didn't see what he, that what he was doing was it. He genuinely believed he was the greatest enemy of the mafia in, in American government. And you mentioned J. Edgar Hoover. It's interesting. Their terms are almost simultaneous, Anslinger and, and J. Edgar Hoover. They're both from the Hoover administration to the Kennedy administration. Uh, they didn't like each other, and uh, they really didn't like each other. There's quite interesting correspondence between them in the archives. And um, Hoover didn't want, never publicly said that the mafia was real. He didn't. He thought it was a fight he couldn't win, so he didn't want to take it on. Whereas Anslinger, to his credit, um, although he ended up ironically empowering these people, Anslinger, uh, was the first major, as I say, one of the first major government officials to, to, to point out that, yeah, the mafia are real, they exist there, and, um, and to document them. And he was right about that. You know, I have to say, for the record, I'm broadcasting from Mexico, so I have to watch what I say. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some people say to me, how do you go to Mexico? There's so much crime there, blah, blah, blah. First of all, it's not, it's not Ciudad Juarez, but we are in a very touristy area. There's a bubble here. There's, there's no crime. And the narcos, they, they actually, if anybody steals from an American, they actually go and get that person and they kill him. 
because they want this completely free so people can come down here and if they want to buy drugs, they want to buy drugs, but they don't want any crime in the area. And as you said, their fear is legalization of drugs because they'll be out of business. This is the 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 reasoning that I cannot understand from U.S. politicians. If you legalize it, like you know, many states are doing in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, what would happen in Mexico? The narcos would be out of business. You would tax it, you would regulate it, just like you did with alcohol. And if you have to be consistent, alcohol, in my opinion, kills more people than marijuana. Marijuana, then why not make it illegal too? You know, one of the people, I don't know if I'm talking about this prematurely and we'll get to it later, but one of the people who's most, yeah, I met so many people who I think about all the time since I wrote Chasing the Screen, but one of the ones I think about the most is this young man called Rosalio Retta. He was a, I spent time in, in Northern Mexico at the, just after the kind of peak of the, the insane violence there. But I actually interviewed Rosalio in prison in Tyler County in, in Texas. And between the age of, uh, 13 and, and 17, he butchered or beheaded about 70 people. And, um, I had a slightly funny experience when I went to see him on the way in. The guard said to me, well, obviously we, we can't leave you with him. He's beheaded 70 people. And I was like, Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> so I, I kind of, we'll, so we'll be right behind you. Right. So we go into this room, just me and him. And about three minutes later, I turned around and they were gone. They just left me. Anyway, fortunately I survived this, but the, um, Rosalio, um, yeah, Rosalio's story, uh, I think tells you a lot about contemporary Mexico. It's actually very similar to the, the, so maybe I should explain it in this order. The, the, the other guy you were asking me about, Arnold Rothstein. So if you think about this dynamic right at the start of the, the drug war, I want to tell the story and then it leads very directly to the story about Rosalio, actually. It's, uh, can we say he's like almost the patient zero when it comes to the drug war, uh, being the, the first drug dealer in a way? He's the, he's the, he invents modern drug dealing. Now someone else would have done it. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't impute too much artistry. Rothstein, but he was a very notorious criminal. He, he he'd grown up in um in in, in Manhattan. His dad was a, an Orthodox, uh, very respected Orthodox Jew, and um, Arnold Rothstein clocks very early that drug prohibition is going to be really good for him and his men. One of the ways we know Arnold Rothstein's story so well. It's because his wife, Carolyn Rothstein, wrote this memoir that I managed to track down. It was almost impossible to find, which is a crazy, crazy memoir. Yeah, you can't get that book anywhere. <laughs> it was mad. But the um, – someone should republish it. I wonder if it's out of the copyright. That you I, should. I, the, um, I love her, Carolyn Rothstein. She's a crazy character. It's a great book. Guys and Dolls, anyone who's seen Guys and Dolls, the uh, what they called Sky Masterson and – whatever the lead woman in Guys and Dolls called, that's based on Arnold and Carol Rothstein. So Arnoldstein is this, this gangster, and he's a crazy, he's, he's a character in, um, what's the Martin Scorsese, Broadwalk Empire, and um, it's based on the real person. And he's this kind of Pablo Escobar in, in, in embryo, really. He, my favorite, so Steve Buscemi, Buscemi is portraying Rothstein? Yeah, Steve Buscemi oh, is playing Oh, interesting. And my favorite Arnold Rothstein crime, although that's probably a terrible thing to say because I'm about to describe a terrible crime, but he, um, he cuts a deal. The richest man in, one of the richest men in the world, the kind of Bill Gates of the time, was a Belgian, uh, a guy called Captain Alfred Lowenstein. He was so rich that he offered during the First World War to buy Belgium from the Germans. And, um, he comes to New York and he agrees with Rothstein to do a massive drug deal. And, this is what we know happened. So we know that bit. We know he cuts this, does this massive drug deal. We then know he gets on a plane to go back to Europe. And we know that when the plane lands in Europe, Captain Alfred Lowenstein is not on the plane. And, uh, the crew claimed that he had fallen out. <laughs> but, um, of course, Arnold Rothstein got to keep all the money that he made from this drug deal with, with Captain Alfred Lowenstein. Draw whatever conclusions you can from that. It's impossible after all this time to, <laughs> be entirely sure, but I think we can make a educated guess. So Arnold Rothstein, uh, so what you see with Arnold Rothstein is the birth of this central dynamic, which is 
if you ban drugs, they don't go away. They are transferred from one group of people, licensed legal businesses, to another group of people, armed criminal gangsters. And you've got to understand that these armed criminal gangsters work differently. And if you want to understand why, you can do a little experiment. I wouldn't recommend trying it in Mexico where you are, but listeners in the United States, try this. Don't actually try it, but, you know, you can imagine trying it. If you, while listening to this show, if you go into a liquor store and try to steal some alcohol, try to steal a bottle of vodka, say, or a pack of Budweiser, um, if that store catches you, they'll call the cops and the cops will come and take you away. So that liquor store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. They've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights. Okay, now try to steal a bag of weed, unless you live in Colorado, Washington, or one of the other states that legalized it, or a bag of cocaine, or a bag of smack. If the guy selling that in your neighborhood catches you, he can't ring the police. He has That would be very foolish. They would come and arrest him. He has to fight you. Now, he doesn't want to be having a fight every day. So he's going to establish that he's such a badass that no one should take him on. He, he, he will establish his place in your neighborhood by fighting off other people, by being so frightening that they don't want to take him on. The war on drugs, as a writer called Charles Bowden puts it, creates a war for drugs. And that dynamic is bad enough if you live, you know, anywhere in the United States, if you live on a housing project in Baltimore, where 10% of the economy is in the hands of these armed criminal gangs, that's going to be a terrible place to live. Now, that's bad enough. And of course, Rothstein is the great beneficiary of that. He uh, goes to war against his rivals. He initiates a lot of this violence and he is then in turn shot. We still don't know who shot him. It's the bullet no one wanted to claim. But I like to think of it as this bullet that then ricochets around the world. But before you tell me how he died, what happened to Lowenstein? How did he disappear from that plane? No one knows. <laughs> That's an incredible uh, story. Yeah, and we don't know what happened to Arnold Rothstein other than that someone shot him. Uh, no one's ever convicted for it. The the police didn't want to look into it. And the police were really uh, very similar to the dynamic in Mexico. The uh, NYPD were basically working for Arnold Rothstein. Someone's, someone at the time described him as the real commissioner of the NYPD. Um, yeah, I mean, at one point, Arnold Rothstein actually shot at two NYPD officers and wasn't even, I think he was tried, but then convict, mysteriously acquitted. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, the, the, you know, he, he, he could buy the, the, the cops. And, um, so you see this dynamic. How similar, I don't mean to interrupt you, but how similar is the, you know, in Mexico, they have plomo, plata or plomo, silver or uh, uh, silver or lead. Basically, we pay you, we bribe you. If you don't take that, then we kill you. How much of that is active in the United States when it comes to law enforcement, you know, the, 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 the judicial and so on? Nothing like in Mexico. I mean, I think the, I think there's a... Um so I did some digging into this. Uh, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, there's some. I wouldn't want to overstate it. So um, we know, for example, I think it's more like kind of forms of, um, in the main, again, I don't want to say there's none because there is. So, for example, I know that there, uh, there have been trials that established um, on the U.S.-Mexican border from Juarez into El Paso. And from uh, Laredo into, uh, from, sorry, from Nuevo Laredo into Laredo, uh, there are times when, so for example, border guards are given quite a lot of money. And, and what they're told is, so, you know, Thursday, 3 p.m., a red truck is going to come through. That's not going to be one of the trucks you stop. So uh, there have been trials establishing there are border, former border agents who are in prison for that. I don't think, I'm not aware of any threats of violence by cartels against U.S. law enforcement. So there's certainly there's the, the silver bit of it. I don't think the lead part of it pertains in the United States. If there is, it hasn't been documented anywhere that I've seen. And I'd be surprised. I, I think that aspect of it, would. the U.S. goes, rightly, goes very hard against people who threaten violence against law enforcement. So I would be surprised if that happens. Now, in Mexico, it's absolutely endemic. Um, I mean, Rosalio, so the guy, young guy I mentioned, so this dynamic of criminals gaining more and more power, you know, as I say, it's bad enough if 
you know, 10% of the economy on a Baltimore housing project is in the hands of these gangs. In Mexico, we're talking, Ciudad Juarez, when I was there, 70% of the economy was was in the hands of these armed criminal gangs. Of course. Now, that means you can pay higher wages than the state. So Rosalio, Rosalio was a, he's an interesting case. Rosalio grew up um, in on the American side of the border in Laredo, but the border was very easy to cross. And he, when he was 13, he was recruited into Los Zetas, one of the most vicious and psychopathic um, and deadly uh, drug gangs. And, um, so they make him kill someone when he's 13 and then he's kind of kept in this kind of drug state and he kills about 70 people, including throwing a hand grenade into a nightclub at one point. And Rosalio, um, when Rosalio would go and kill people, the police would go with him and they would help him dispose of the body. I remember when I went to Juarez, my fixer was a wonderful, a really extraordinary journalist called um, uh, Julian Cardona, who's the Reuters, at the time was the Reuters correspondent in Juarez. And Julian, I remember the first few days I was there, he kept taking me to interview people, families of people who'd been killed by the police. And after a while I said, you know, Julian, this is an important part of the story, but like I need to interview the families of people who've been killed by the cartels. And and Julian just did this kind of sad laugh and said, Oh no, Johan, you don't understand. They're not they're not separate forces. If the cartels, yeah, if the cartels want to kill someone, they just pay the police to do it. It's not a And that was when I realized how unbelievably terrifying it would be to be in one of those places that have just been taken over by the cartels, because if someone comes to you, who are you going to call? There's the people you would call are the people coming for you. Um, so you see this dynamic in, in this dynamic plays out everywhere. The war on drugs creates a war for drugs. Um, Milton Friedman, the Nobel prize winning economist calculated that there are 10,000 additional murders every year in the United States as a direct result of that, that dynamic. But that is even, even more catastrophic in the supply route countries. You know, um, one of the reasons I cared so much about this, as we mentioned, is, you know, because of addiction and what we do to people with addiction problems. I think it's heinous. I'm sure we'll get to that. But actually, I think the biggest moral issue surrounding the drug war is what we're talking about. More people have died in Mexico and Colombia in the drug war than have died in Syria. Right. And you compare how much we talk about Syria, quite rightly, we should talk about it, to how little we talk about Colombia and Mexico. And we can solve the situation in Colombia and Mexico, right? If you want to know how much of these deaths are due to the drug war, due to drug prohibition, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers in Chicago today? Does the head of Budweiser go and shoot the head of Smirnoff? You know, does the head of Coors go and blow up the rival, you know, uh, bars? Of course not. Exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition. Everyone listening to this program knows who Al Capone was. And when did that violence end? It ended the day alcohol was legalized again, literally on the day. There's a professor at Harvard called Jeffrey Myron who's done really good research on this. You know, look at the murder rate in the United States. It massively spikes up during alcohol prohibition and it massively falls the day alcohol prohibition ends. People don't go to war for a legal product, right? It doesn't happen. Well, there are competition, there's market competition, there's you know, you can have a price war, you can have uh, all sorts of things in a legal product, but you don't have physical violence surrounding legal products. They don't exist. I had this really interesting illustration of this once. I've got a friend in New York who's got a kind of um, hippie husband who likes to buy raw, unpasteurized milk, and um, which you can't legally buy in the United right. States. Quite it's almost like drugs. Yeah, exactly. You're not allowed to buy it. So, but there's a market for it in New York City among these slightly annoying hippies. And, um, my friend went to go and collect it for his husband. And so there's like, you're told be at this van at the corner of like 48th and 5th or whatever it was. So we go there and it's this woman, this kind of woman in her sixties and she was crying. She was really upset. And we kind of said, Oh, what's wrong? And she said, um, Oh, you know, I've been robbed. I, um, I can't remember the details, but this is about five years ago, but, um, someone had come along and they, while she was getting the milk for them from the van, they'd just taken all her money and gone. And of course she couldn't call the police because she can't explain why she's there. And I thought, Oh, the tragedy of this is you've now got to learn the first rule of drug dealing, which is you can't be weak if you're a drug dealer because people will just come and rob you. They'll just take everything, right? 
you've got to be intimidating. You've got to be threatening. And this woman wasn't threatening, so they could just rob her. And that, of course, is the rule of drug dealing, right? My friend Chino Hardin, the transgendered crank dealer in Brooklyn, who I write about in Chasing the Scream, who is one of the most extraordinary people I know. You know, Chino, um, he explained to me, you know. Yeah, I want you to talk about Chino. He has such an incredible story. He is a product of the drug war from conception to now. He was conceived. He's the same age as me, Chino. So he was, I think he's a year older. So 1978. He was conceived when his mother, who was a crack addict, was raped by his dad, who was an NYPD officer. And so he's this pure product of the drug war. And his mother, Deborah, died of crack addiction. Well, died related to her crack addiction when Chino was uh, 12. And he never knew his father, Victor. He met him once. Um, and Chino is a really powerful illustration of this story. He, he becomes a crack dealer when he was 13. He's sent to Rikers as a teenager, really brutalized. Um, and then when he's uh, 20, he becomes this great campaigner against the drug war. And yeah, he's an extraordinary person. But again, Chino is really an illustration of the this system creates violence. It requires violence. Drug prohibition transfers a really popular product, drugs, from the legal sector, the people who used to control it before Anslinger, doctors and pharmacists who did not carry out any acts of violence, to armed criminal gangs that can only operate through violence. It begins with Arnold Rothstein, but it continues to the present day. And... um you know, you, you see this insane violence um, really ricocheting around. And it's important to understand because sometimes the violence, actually I shouldn't use the word insane, I should correct myself, because when you look at, particularly if you think about northern Mexico when I was there, you look at this violence and it's easy to think that this is just psychopaths, right? This is just like Hannibal Lecter. Like you look at this grotesque ISIS-style violence and you think, oh, this is just psychos, right? Actually, as Rosalio helped me to understand, um, this violence is unimaginably terrible, but it performs a function. In a market that can only operate by violence, you gain a brief competitive advantage if you're prepared to push that violence a little bit further than, than the other guys, right? So, as Rosalio explained to me, if you are the guys who are prepared to not just kill the other side, but kill their wives, you gain a brief competitive advantage, you get more of the market. If you're the guys who are prepared to not just kill the other guy's wives, but kill their pregnant wives, then you get a brief competitive advantage over the other side, right? If you're the first person to prepare to do that, to film, kill their pregnant wives and put it on YouTube, then you gain a brief competitive advantage. It's like a kind of Darwinian race to make people more and more vicious. If you're the first people to not just kill the other side's family, but cut off their faces and sew their faces onto a football, which is something that they do now, Again, you gain a brief competitive advantage. So this is a system where, of course, the people doing this are disgusting, depraved. It's unimaginably vicious. But there is a functionality to the violence. It's not like Jeffrey Dahmer or something where it's just like random, you know, or sexually. I can't remember the details about the Jeffrey Dahmer case, but whatever got Jeffrey Dahmer off, it wasn't the functionality of the violence. It's who has the competitive advantage, however that might be. Exactly. You saw that starting with Rothstein. I mean, so you see this Darwinian process. It's a bit like, you know, the race between antibiotics and viruses where, you know, we use more antibiotics, the viruses get stronger. So we need stronger antibiotics. Um, the, the, you get this Darwinian race. So Arnold Rothstein wouldn't last five minutes in you drop, t- take Arnold Rothstein from 1920s New York and drop him in Juarez today. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. We're at a, we're at a very different level with the violence. I mean, you know, Rothstein seems like a, well, like his guys and dolls character compared to the, you know, the, the, the madness in, in Juarez. And, it, and, and, um, uh, but I also thought, you know, it's very easy to tell these people are just mad, they're psychopathic. There is, and Rosalio Retta, the guy I got to know who, who was a hitman for the Zetas, he would have been a, I have no doubt he would have been violent, absent the drug war, but there would not have been an industry to arm him to equip him, to pay him to go and behead people, to reward him for that, to keep him out of prison, to incentivize, to give him massive amounts of drugs so that he was even drugged while he was doing it. That, that would not exist for a 13-year-old boy 
you know, in the absence of the drug war, yeah, it just wouldn't happen, right? So um, he he would probably have been violent, but he would not have. He certainly would not be able to carry out seventy horrifically brutal murders. And you see that again, Chino, my friend, the transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn. You know, Chino, Chino, I think would have been. Well, it's hard to imagine a counterfactual without the drug war because he wouldn't even exist. But Chino would have acted out in certain ways, but there would not have been a structure, incentive, uh, uh, an industry for him to be part of that required violence absent the drug war. You don't, there, there is no other such thing. Uh, there are other violent industries, but they're not the kind of thing that can be recruiting 13 year olds. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, I think we really, we really, we really see this. It is, it is an enormous cause of violence and it is the single most preventable form of violence in our society. Yeah, we have to take a break. How can people buy the book Chasing the Scream and all your other work? Uh, well, I would like you to buy it from your local independent bookstore. If you don't do that, which should have it in stock. If you don't do that, you can buy it from Amazon. Um, there's a list at www.chasingthescream. And that's scream as in, ah, not scream as in thing you look at. Uh, chasingthescream.com. On chasingthescream.com, you can listen to audio of interviews with a lot of the people we've talked about. You can uh, take a quiz to see how much you really know about drugs and the war on drugs and addiction. And uh, you can find out where to buy the book and you can hear what lots of different people said about the book from Elton John to Bill Maher to Sam Harris to a whole crazy range of people who like the book. And you also have a Facebook page, right? The book has a very active Facebook page. It's www.facebook.com slash chasing the screen where you can learn loads more stuff as well. Great. So much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you.